maybe your CX leader, the person who owns the, the lifetime value, owns revenue numbers associated with a customer, would be the person to say, I want poly AI, for example, and I want the data that comes with it. That's not to say an operations person wouldn't, but the goal of an operational efficiency model is probably not to close that loop in, in acquiring customers and then getting all the way to evangelizing them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Deep Learning with Poly AI. I am one of your hosts, Michelle Schroeder. I'm here with Nicola Murchich, and we just got off of our very first annual Polybox, our first annual event for 2023. It was so incredible. Nicola, how are you feeling about it? Oh, amazing. It was really good. I think we've had a thousand people, a lot of our existing prospective customers. We talked about voice, where it's going show people a lot of the generative stuff that our product team has been working on really hard. So I'm, I'm really pumped. I'm excited. Yeah, I am too. I'm pumped, but also the adrenaline is starting to go down. We've all been up since. <laughs> a crash is coming. <laughs> the crash is definitely coming, but not before we have a discussion about efficiency versus strategy or really operations, like operational efficiency and customer experience, these two competing interests. And for your opening session at Vox, you talked a lot about this. You opened up with really a lot of the frustrations that sort of drove you to start Poly AI, the sort of bad calls, the bad experiences with technology that are really an extension of the tough spot that contact center leaders have been in probably since inception, since the beginning of contact centers, which is just how do you meet more of these KPIs? How do you address more customer concerns? How do you just do more and more and more until you've squeezed out the sponge and left yeah. nothing but a hollow, lightweight kind of customer <laughs> experience behind? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit. Like you, you talked about the customer sort of being stuck in the middle of this experience between these two yeah, competing yeah. interests. For sure. Look, I think that when it comes to customer service, it's a cyclical business and this depends on the vertical and the shape of the economy. But whenever companies are in a tough spot and they just don't have an appropriately staffed and trained contact center, they resort to the dark arts, which is, well, the best or maybe the most expedient, fastest to apply form of automation available at that point in time. So I once upon a time spoke with a very large U.S. carrier and they told me very proudly in a team full of IVR engineers, all double my age that um, they're really good at this. They don't need help. Their containment rates are 92%. And we do a lot of work, and I think we have a state-of-the-art conversational system for getting both containment and a good experience. And 92%, unless you're doing something really simple, like answering questions, maybe your front desk for hotels is one of our applications where we get that kind of performance. But if we're talking about complex billing issues, if you're walking customers off, a cliff trying to get them to not churn. I'm like 92%, these guys are either running a secret Manhattan project and conversational AI, or, and then I dialed into their system, it's an IVR tree that is a labyrinth of epic proportions. You just can't get out. So yeah, yeah you are very effectively contained, as is any shred of dignity or a good experience that you might have hoped to have when calling that phone number. And lo and behold, Trustpilot score 1.0 out of five, not even 1.1. So I think this company didn't do this because they hate their customers. They just had to at some point. They couldn't pay for it. The market was what it is. And that contact center manager at one point said, do it, whatever. Have a cramp in your leg. Let's amputate the whole thing. And then you won't have a cramp in your leg. 
right? So it's definitely not something that long-term generates value for the company, but these are the compromises people made. And then we got stuck there. That's it. That's the efficiency side. Yeah. It can be quite efficient. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. I think a lot of times like when investors are looking at stocks or like public companies and they're thinking like, what's the profile of a company that I believe is going to be healthy long-term, right? They're, it's not really like they're looking at things the way that we're, we are right now, where we're talking about sort of operations versus customer experience, strategy, but they are looking at something which is around like profitable growth versus kind of innovation. So like expenses and being able to keep that under control, operational efficiency versus their ability to innovate and keep up. And what I thought was so interesting is you talk about the IVR engineers that were twice your age and saying, no, we're good. We don't need anything new. Like we've got our KPIs, the KPIs that matter to us, check. But I think it's partially because at that time, and I don't know exactly when this was, but I'm assuming it was pre-COVID, customer experience really was not considered an innovation. It wasn't, it, that's just not really how people thought of it because it wasn't even necessarily like a technical challenge where you need to have all of your stuff in place, like the digital transformations. You needed to understand how to meet your customer, customer data and react to that and actually make a better customer experience based off of what you know. And because it wasn't always considered an innovation or an innovative thing to be a customer experience first company. I wonder if the KPIs weren't wrong. Containment, which sounds like jail, the way that you described it. Do you agree with that? Have the KPIs changed since the beginning of you starting this company versus now? Absolutely. I think that the one thing that has been happening, I think probably for a decade now, is that companies are getting better at knowing what one point of MPS is worth for you know, mm. top line and for their lifetime value of their customers. And these are difficult problems to work on and to attribute, right? Because you could say anything and most parts of the company are incentivized to exaggerate their contribution to this. And it's just, a, it's not an exact science. But I was in a meeting with a large financial institution a few months ago, and they had a very precise number measured in millions around like what one point of MPS meant. And I was like, wow, cool. This is it. Like they know, because it's always hard to write a good business case for that improvement in customer experience because the shorter waiting times mean that it really depends on how your competition is doing. The reason I said initially that it really depends on the vertical and geography is if the whole industry has converged, converged on long menu DTMS where you just can't get out, if old telcos are behaving that way, that's just okay then, right? You're not really losing customers because you have it. Now, if one of them upsets the status quo, that's where things get really interesting because then they have a problem and they need to react to at least have parity with those other companies. And when we look at our customer base, a lot of our buyers are people who never wanted to deploy that kind of experience. And we pride ourselves on the fact that a company like say Sheezers works with us when they've never worked with previous generations of this technology because they are just, they were unwilling to take that hit to customer experience. And I think some metrics aside, I think it was clear to all that you're not making your experience better when you put these things in place. Yeah. Efficiency versus quality of experience. They were making a pretty conscious trade out there. Now, the real challenge for our generation of companies is provide both. And that is just a trade-off, right? More technologies can probably be even more vicious at forcing extremely strong containment. But the good news is 
they're way better than balancing the two things. Yeah. So that you can like get something that picks up all the time and just gives enough time back to the contact center so that you know what's left of it can do what it does like really, really well. Like that human part, things that are not maybe transactional, things that are edge cases, extremely high value customers that you really still want to keep assigned to your best agents. Well, if someone's updating an address and our voice assistant works perfectly, frankly, it probably works faster than a human because it actually has a higher, a lower error rate at transcribing numbers and zip codes and things like that than a human. Yeah. I, I have a controversial question that you just sparked, which is just the people who own certain types of KPIs. So it's awesome that large financial institution, they had the sense of what a point in NPS is actually worth. But generally, I don't know how many people within an organization are drawing a direct line between the customer experience in the contact center and the revenue, average revenue like per customer. And I wonder if not just, we're talking at a very high level about sort of operational efficiency versus experience, but those are often different people within an organization too. So you might have like somebody who's in charge of operational efficiency or an operational leader versus a customer experience leader, somebody whose sole job it is to make that CSAT score go up and make it mean something in terms of revenue. And I don't know if they're at odds with each other. I don't know if they're both making buying decisions, but I would assume that the operational person bought the the IVR back in the day, like back in, in, this, in this version of enterprises making yep. that decision to like lower the cost, but make sure those calls are getting answered. They would make that type of decision. Whereas I'm assuming like a, an experienced leader would want to make a different kind of choice, maybe a more expensive choice. And I have examples from my past life at, at other companies, but I'm just curious about that. Do you see those two, not just competing interests, but competing individuals within an organization? And do you think that's a sign of the maturity of that organization if they are still sitting far apart. I think it just happens organically, right? And we've had cases where we work with companies where customer experience is just trying to make sure that this thing that someone else bought doesn't impact customer experience negatively, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not really marrying the kind of like the objectives of what we're doing with the overall business objectives, but they're looking just at like, how do I make sure that this has the least that it impacts customer experience and or just changes the experience in the smallest way possible. And that becomes problematic, right? Because then design choices start getting controversial. Instead of having a voice assistant that really leads the way that a human would, that tries to create the most expedient, fast, good experience, the way that the best of the human agents would, they're like offering you to speak to a human if you ever want. They're disclaimers, they're apologizing. And guess what? If you're a voice assistant and the first thing you do is, hey, here's an answer to your question. Do you want to speak to a human? People are just going to say yes. So your containment slow. And frankly, you've just added a completely unnecessary barrier to speaking to humans, which is what you're going to get in 95% of the cases anyway. So in that case, you paid poly after that technology. You put an annoying barrier in between the contact center and the consumer and it's just it's not really going to work that well conversely if you really then like optimize for a thing that would engage in the way that a human would then you create a bit of friction right a bit of positive friction where you try to get the callers to engage so a good example would be what do you do when someone stays silent right 
staying silent is one of the most popular ways of getting out of a conversation with a voice assistant, right? Okay. Didn't really get what you're saying. You're ready. You're like, Hey, sorry. Could you say that again or whatever? Maybe you're hearing just like loud breathing or something like that. <laughs> At that point, what we recommend to most of our customers is hang up, right? A, it might just be a connectivity issue. B, let them say something, right? Because at the very least, the best thing that a voice assistant can do is they don't want to speak to it, right? Like, okay, who can I route you to, right? Like, they do need to get there. So people are a bit more used to that first generation of IVR, which is used for routing, more so than for like full-on task completions. They say something and you go, oh, is, is it about that? You lead proactively with the most common call type. They're like, yeah. Then you go a bit further. Maybe if you haven't automated the whole thing, at least what you've done for that specific consumer is you brought them a bit closer to a future in which interacting with a voice assistant is as natural as dealing with a smartphone app or a good website. And that's what we have to work on. And yeah, is it a sign of maturity of those organizations? I don't know. I'd blame us, the vendors, and our maturity and what we've achieved, where you know they just haven't seen it happen in yeah. practice. Enough. If someone's like coughing up a six-figure commit to implement this kind of technology, they probably thought it through and have some metrics. So then over time, what we tend to see is a convergence between COO and the CIO and just customer experience contact center around metrics that are the best representation of what those companies are focused on. And that depends on the company, right? Some never want to miss a call. Others are really looking to protect themselves from having to pay a BPO for an extra 500 people over Christmas if there's a retail company and have big peaks and throats. So yeah, I think it's, it's a bit more nuanced than that, but yeah. these guys know what they're doing. I think it's the faith in the technology and the vendor's ability to deliver it that's been like, that's why they're stuck in those IVR conversations where they think that nothing better can be done. That makes a lot of sense. I wonder too that the vendors maybe have blurred those lines a little bit, or, but I wonder if a few years from now, when we answer, and we will answer in this podcast, the, the question, can you actually do both? Can you actually be both as a brand or even as a voice assistant? Can you support both operational efficiencies and customer experience? Like, really? But maybe in a world where the answer to that question is just an unequivocal yes, and you're like, yeah, absolutely, you're supporting both. Maybe the buyer profile does change. Like maybe your CX leader, the person who owns the, the lifetime value owns revenue numbers associated with a customer would be the person to say, I want poly AI, for example, and I want the data that comes with it. And I'm saying this because I was speaking with someone, a prospect at the time, a client now, who is basically saying that she wishes that the insights that came out of the call center fed their creative agency because they're getting so much information from what clients actually want, what they yep. care about that it makes more sense to use that data and use those experiences to attract other clients that are like them. And it's just dawned on me. This is exactly what an experienced leader, how they would be thinking about closing the loop. That's not to say an operations person wouldn't, but it's not the goal of an operational efficiency model is probably not to close that loop in, in acquiring customers and then getting all the way to evangelizing them. So it's just an interesting thing um, to think about. Anyway, let's get back to the actual question of the podcast is, do you think we can do both? That's like what we're trying to do, right? I think what you said is really interesting because the personas, they vary across different industries, but often the contact center is like has natural allies, right? So if they're taking a lot of orders, if they're taking appointments and stuff, 
to probably pretty close to the commercial part of the business, right? And that may not be the same thing as an operational side of the business, right? Often we have in some of our best buyers are people who are in marketing organizations because they have the mm -hmm. data, they love getting the data back mm -hmm. and they have the data around like what this means for the top line. So it may not be like that MPS point vis-a-vis -vis churn and long-term lifetime value. It may just be like very spot mapping like, hey, like if these guys do better on that SLA, we get more bookings, right? So we often have like marketing there. And I think it really speaks to who is the buyer for AI in general, not even for yeah. just our product. And it's an executive who knows how to translate its value into, well, and those use cases into value for their own company. And I think that kind of talent it merges organically across companies. It could be in CX, but it's often in marketing. It's often in ops. CIOs, especially more commercially oriented ones, are often in a really good place to do this and to bring the business yeah. and IT together around this. That also depends on the delivery model. But yeah, I think we can have it all. I think once upon a time, people were told, go online to book. And that was just like, go online to book your airline ticket. And I remember the Belgrade of my years and you had like Yugoslav Aerotransport boots everywhere and they were very nice and shiny. You would go and you'd buy a ticket. And I don't think there's a single one left at this point. And it's hard to imagine if a website for an airline is a bit clunky, hard to use. You're probably booking the other flight if you have a choice. So I think there you go through like a drop. And the good news is the drop with voice assistance, that's already happened, right? All those screaming calls, people screaming for a representative, hanging up, staying silent to, to navigate that. Like we've hit rock bottom, right? And that's not to criticize the first generation of the vendors, but it's just how technology goes, right? Yeah. And I think what's always been fascinating for us as an Anglo-American company that has deployments in more than 20 countries, we probably have the first voice assistant ever in Poland, in Sweden, in Croatia. People engage much more freely and they just skip a generation of these things. They have better conversations, right? It's the Americans that we have to walk off the ledge and get them to engage through trickery, through pleading, begging. And we're changing their mind as well, but they've been burned before. And I think for a yeah. lot of these other places, which they've never had voice activated automation, like they're just sailing into a world where this stuff does do both. And I think that's exciting. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And not to sound too much like a, a Pollyanna, but I think that IVRs and like all of those bad experiences, they really paved the way for tools like ours. In a lot of ways, when IVRs came out and the contact center leader who is constantly being asked to the question, how can we make this cheaper? How can we resolve more of these calls? They got the IVR sort of technology. The, it became a very obvious, necessary disruption. It, was, it became a trade-off that everyone was very willing to take. And I think, yes, it caused a lot of pain. It caused a lot of customers to be really unhappy with the phone channel. But the fact that we were already starting from rock bottom meant yeah. that the voice assistant, the conversational AI industry had some room to experiment. They had some room to try things. Not to plug Vox, our, our, our annual event, too much, but what I found just stunning as, as a person who was like observing a lot of what was happening was all of our clients were not just early adopters. They really blended these two ideas together. They really, they saw the vision years before, I think, the world yeah, is yeah. seeing it now, which is just, yeah, maybe we can have both. 
this is how I'm planning on managing expectations and the hiccups along the way. And then I think if you heard just the overwhelming positivity from the nine clients we had on stage today, it just shows you like how far we've yeah. come from that. No, for sure. I felt really warm and fuzzy listening to a lot of it. I didn't even know some of the best uh, data points we heard, right? There was someone who just said, I would have had to hire 200 extra people. I oh, yeah. It's impossible in this climate. When we look at this technology and does it offer the right trade-offs, people forget that for large contact centers, a lot of it historically has been someone managing their own internal agents and then a number of different BPOs where they're dealing mm -hmm. with probably like partners they've worked with for many years, like large BPOs like Teleperformance, WebHelp, Capita, and they're used to like saying, hey, data stayed there. Their agent churn is not that bad, so they'll get better in six months. These guys here, they're cheaper, but they churn a lot of people. They're not very good at supporting me when the SLAs get tougher. So they're used to like managing those trade-offs already. And sure. You could look at an AI solution as flexible, moldable, supply of agents of a certain quality. And the fun part is they're different in some ways, right? Some things they're really good. In other ways, they are not very good and they're improving. But overall, it's an optimization problem that especially mm -hmm. at the larger side of enterprise, these guys know how to do it. They know how to do it well. I think that they've been trying to get that best mix. They're handed a budget and they're like, I can't do that. I can hire people here in San Francisco. I'm going to go hire in Manila where I'll have more agents so I can get that costing them because at the end of the day they're pnl owners and they have objectives and they've been especially when you look at some of the largest enterprises it's not uncommon to have someone working with five different bpos to service their clients so yeah. i think what's one more in the shape of an ai vendor yeah it's a seesaw problem i i think why offshoring came about why all of these types of things between operational sort of cost and making sure that you're being responsible fiscally responsible versus like actually serving a great customer experience. And I think our goal is to get it from Seesaw to just flat line, but really high, a really high yeah, bar. Yes, yeah. I think that it's been really interesting. And I think we have, we have a lot to give there. So. Agree. Agree. Awesome. This has been a great chat. I think our next one, well, we've got a lot of things to cover. We announced our generative AI platform beta today. And I think that is going to likely be the future, like the evolution of sort of where all of these um, technologies yeah. are coming. So thanks, Nicola. Thank you, Michelle.